This message is part of the teaching provided by House on the Rock Fellowship, a church caring for the Miami Valley region. Before you listen, be sure to access the notes in the download section of the message page. Have a Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. The derailment. Let's talk about that. The crisis that some want to ignore. Parties responsible don't want to come forward. Its impact is leaching into everything. Anyone close to the epicenter has been forced out. Some have just moved on altogether. It's hard to know, but we might be able to assume that it could have been prevented, the derailment. We see it causing physical, emotional, mental, relational pain. Lasting consequences. It's hard to say, isn't it? It's hard to say. Unchecked, this could affect generations. Some smell a cover-up. Some are playing it down that all is fine. Lots of finger pointing, isn't there? I'm sure you've guessed it. I want to talk about your sin this morning. Oh, did you think I wanted to talk about that? But I think that could help, actually. The, the tragedy that has unfolded four hours from here on the east side of the state, I think can be a very helpful means by which we can talk about something that we don't want to talk about. But something in all reality can't be covered up, can't be washed away, can't be ignored. Something that most people, guilty parties, don't like to deal with. Something that affects all in our circle. Something that creates pain and suffering on all levels. Yes, with the tragedy of the derailment in our minds, let's talk about your sin, my sin. This morning, I certainly, you know what they say, every time you point one finger at somebody else, there's lots pointing back at you. I include myself in the conversation this morning. Like the derailment in East Palestine, some of us have derailed their life. We have gotten completely off the tracks. And we live in the wake of our foolishness. Some of us are a train barreling down the tracks. Too fast, too much, too toxic, 
and warning after warning after warning, if we do not heed, if we do not slow down, surely derailment is in our future. Some of us are like that poor town. You didn't ask for it. You didn't look for it. You didn't want it. But you have become a part of the collateral damage of somebody else's bad choice. And you live in that poison. And you don't know how to move forward. But all of us, all of us, all of us could become that disaster we see on the news. But by the grace of God, go I. And so we feel the suffering and the pain. We don't know when it comes to East Palestine, we don't know as far as that town what restoration looks like, do we? We have no idea. The honest person says, we don't know what the effects are going to be. In essence, we dropped a chemical nuclear bomb on a town. We have no idea what the lasting impact is going to be. Maybe some are right and everything's fine. But in our guts, we're like, I think this is a hot mess. But for those of us who come here this morning with a humble heart, salvation for us is only a prayer away. Amen? You could have done better than that. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. Take out your Bibles, please, and turn to Psalm 38. We'll get to work. Psalm 38 is the reading that we had just a little bit ago. Psalm 38 is where we'll spend our time. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. They're located in the seats in front of you. I'm going to be reading from what we call the ESV, the English Standard Version. Your Bible, if you brought a different translation, some of the words might be a little different. That's okay. Ryan Rockstar Collins is going to have the verses up on the screen for you to follow along. And we're going to let this psalm guide us. Because I've often wondered as you look at that mess of those train cars, how do you clean that up? Where do you start? What do you do? I have no idea. I think Psalm 38 can help us untangle a derailed life and get things back on track. Psalm 38, there's 22 verses and we're going to walk through all of them. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through it once just so we can kind of get a feel for it because there's a lot there. And then I'm going to go through it again, but I'm going to give you some anchor points to kind of help you break it up a little bit. Okay? Does that make sense? So we can see it in its pieces. You follow along with your translation. Okay? Psalm 38. We're going to read verses 1 through 22. You follow along. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning. And there's no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the turmoil in my heart. Oh Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. 
My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions, they stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I'm like a deaf man, I, I don't hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I've become like a man who does not hear and whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O oh Lord, do I wait. It's you, O oh Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They're mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good. Accuse me before I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God. Be not far from me. Make haste to help me. O Lord, my salvation. There's a, there's a lot there, isn't it? There's, there's a lot there. That's 22 verses of hot mess. Like those train cars that are all crumpled up. If you look at it, how do, you, how do we untangle that? How do we stretch that out a little bit? How do we get things back on path? There's five verses in this psalm that begin with the word for, if you're reading in my translation, F-O-R. In those five verses, those five phrases are a great means to help us pull this open a little bit. Kind of give us five places to get a point of reference. So I'm going to go back through the psalm. I'm going to read it again. And what I would like you to do is notice, if you will, where those phrases are and what they're talking about. And then we're going to come back through and kind of give ourselves um, an anchor point so that we can get things back, okay? So I'm going to go back through the psalm. You follow and see if you can't find these five places, okay? You ready? I'll try to uh, make it really obvious in the way I read it, okay? I'll try to be helpful. Oh, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Oh, Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing, it's not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions, they stand aloof from my plague. My nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak Speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man, I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth, I've become like a man 
who does not hear and whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. For my foes are vigorous. They're mighty and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. So do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Did you find those five places? Imagine, if you will, that word serves like a link in a chain for something that comes before and something that comes after. Okay? If you think about a long train, is what couples cars together. That word for lets us know that whatever we just read, here's the reason for it. I'm experiencing this because this has happened. And so if we, we kind of go through that psalm, we, we see these five places. Verse 2, for your arrows, meaning that, that there's something about this psalm and this situation that God's a part of. God, it's your arrows. It's your hand in this. We'll talk about that. Verse 4, for my iniquities. There's something about this situation and my iniquity, whatever that means, is a big part of it. Verse 7, a part of this poem is about my sides are filled with burning. Literally, I'm sick to my stomach. There's a suffering that's being talked about in this poem. If you go down to verse 16, for I said, only let them. Meaning there's a community at play. This isn't just about me. This is about a group that he's talking about. And then finally, in verse 17, for I am ready to fall. I confess my iniquity. Part of this poem, he is crying out. I am crying out. All five of these are kind of knotted together all throughout this poem. And what we're going to do is we're going to try to tease those out a little bit, if you will. Kind of like someone who has hair. I don't. You have to tease, tease those knots out. So we're going to try to tease these things out a little bit, okay, this morning. So we look at those five things to help us understand how to get a life back on track. Back on track. I'm not going to start with the first one because I think there's something that comes first. And it's not the first element talked about. It comes in verse 4 when he talks about my iniquity. If you're someone who takes notes, that might be something that you want to write down on your message guide. Just write down my iniquity in verse 4. That's a helpful element that we want to zero in on. He says, verse 4, My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Iniquity. Hey, how many of you use that word this morning? Right? How many of you like, use that word at all? Like, when do you remember the last time you used the word iniquity? The word sin, that's a very common word in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. What that refers to, sin, some say missing the mark, is when we do things that violate creation. Okay? We violate created order, design the way God has said it, the way God has put it. I could sin against myself. I could do things that harm me, that bring damage to me. I could do things that are a violation of my design. Okay, that would be a sin, I'm missing the mark. I could do things that are sinful against you. 
I could do things that mar your design. As an image bearer of God, I could damage that. That would be called a sin. There's things that I can do that mar and that hurt God directly. Hurt God directly. So if you think about the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are kind of split. Okay, How do I love God? How do I love others? We did a whole series on this. Okay, There's a reason we call the Big Ten the Big Ten. But if you think about the Ten Commandments, it unpacks that idea. It lets me know what's sinful and what's not. What is right living and what isn't. How does it start? I'm the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who delivered you. Have no other gods before me. I'm number one. That doesn't mean you can have a whole lot of other train cars behind you. You can't just worship a whole line of gods. I'm just the first one. No, I'm the only one, right? I'm the only one. I'm the only one. He goes on to say number two. No idols. No idols. Don't bow down to other things. You are my image bearer, is what he's saying. I created you to reflect my glory. So don't bow down to other things. Don't worship other things. Number three, carry my name a certain way. Respect. Carry my, live your life in such a way that it shines upon me. Don't mar that. Don't break that. Number four, Sabbath. Love Sabbath. Sabbath is awesome. Talk about a gift from God. Holy cow. A day of promise, a day of rest. Looking forward to the time in the story when we enter in a perfect rest, when sin is gone and death is gone and things are right again. You are to live a certain rhythm to your life. God says, honor that. Don't be chasing after things you shouldn't be chasing after. Don't hop on the hamster wheel. Don't jump in the rat race. Five, honor your father and mother, meaning honor the legacy of faith that you've received and pass that legacy of faith down to others. You've received the story. You've received faith. Now walk in it. Honor them. Revere them. Honor that authority of faith. Six, I like that one. Don't kill each other. I mean, you'd think, duh, right? But no, clearly this has to be articulated. Don't kill each other. Just don't. God came to bring life, to create life. You going around killing each other kind of flies in the face of that. Adultery. Keep your promise. He said yes. She said yes. Honor the promise. Live a sexual ethic that esteems and honors the creator. Don't be stealing stuff. Don't take someone else's things. Don't be greedy. Be a truth teller. Don't be a part of the lie. Don't covet. Don't want things that you're not supposed to be wanting. Don't let something else dominate your heart, whether it's your neighbor's house, his wife, or his stuff. To violate those things is what the Bible calls sin. Sin, a general term. But what does iniquity mean? Beautiful thing about the Bible, it uses lots of terms to help us understand it from lots of angles. You can have sin, you can have trespasses, you can have, some of you when you pray the Lord's Prayer, you say trespasses just to tick me off. Because um, that's not how I taught you to pray it, but that's how some pastor taught you to pray it. And well, you haven't arrived yet, so we'll get there. Some of the Methodists are laughing and some of the Methodists are mad at me right now. That's okay. 
Uh, and then you have the word iniquity. What does iniquity mean? Well, if you have sin as that act that, that, that breaks off from God's creation, iniquity is referring to the mess that act creates. Okay? Iniquity is zeroing in on the mess your sin, my sin, creates. It literally means a bentness, a brokenness. Because I did this, it broke that. Because of that choice, I live under a heavy weight in my soul, is what iniquity means. And you see this. Word for word, as you go through the psalm, just listen. Verse 2. Your arrows have sunk into me. Your hand, God, has come down on me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. And like a heavy burden, they're too heavy for me. Verse 5, he says, my wounds stink and fester. Verse 6, I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. I go about mourning. 7, for my sides are filled with burning. Literally, I'm sick to my stomach. Verse 8, I'm feeble. I'm crushed. I groan. Iniquity talks about the suffering that comes about because of my sin. So let's talk about that a little bit, my suffering. We talk about my iniquity. It's one of those things we want to tease out that idea. Let's tease that out. Now let's tease out that that's suffering a little bit. If you were to go through the, the, that psalm, that suffering kind of fleshes out in lots of different ways. In a broad stroke, in, in verse 7, when he says, there's no soundness in my flesh, that literally means I have no peace. I don't have peace because of what I've done. Peace is not the absence of war. Peace is the present wholeness of God's good creation. It is the way God designed it to be. That's why the whole story of God is moving towards peace. Wonderful counselor, everlasting God, prince of peace. Jesus is bringing us to peace. Resurrection Sunday is about creating peace. And he says, I don't have that. There's no peace. I have no soundness in my flesh. Things have been broken apart. Things have been shattered. Take a beautiful, expensive china cup and crash it against the wall and look at the pieces that shatter. There's no peace there. He says, this is what I feel. He says he feels it physically. I mean, if you look at some of those terms, does, he's unpacking a, a physical idea. He says, I feel it in my bones. I feel my body being pressed down. There's an achiness. There's a groaning. Maybe you've experienced that. We don't know specifically what the iniquity is that he committed. We're not told that, and I think that's a beautiful thing. It might cause some of us to skip over the song. Oh, I ain't never done that. I don't have to worry about it. No, he, he presents this in such a way that all of us should be able to read it. Maybe his choice did bring about an actual physical wounding. Maybe he did something, and it, you know, caused an immediate fracturing to his body like a drunk driver destroys his body 
or maybe because we are a holistic being, that the crying of his spirit has now leached into his physical being. He says, I feel this in my flesh. He talks about a physical suffering. But there's also like an internal mental suffering he's talking about. He talks about his heart. My heart is groaning on the inside. I feel it down deep. He's groaning. He's crying out. There's a mental anguish, an internal strife because of the iniquity. What that sin has done, it has messed him up, messed her up. The suffering, he unpacks a spiritual suffering between he and God. God, there's indignation and there's wrath and there's anger from you. There's a brokenness, a shattering. There's no peace in our relationship. Then he goes on and he talks about relational suffering. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Community. Let's tease that out a little bit. You know, the, the relationship that he has with, with God. He says, my Lord, in the very first verses, first one and verse two. How, how is that suffering? What does the Lord have to do with this? Okay, let me just read verses one, two, and three. Oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. Verse one. Nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me. Your hand has come down on me. Now look at verse three. There is no soundness in my flesh, peace, because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. You see how he links those two? He connects them. My Lord, you are a part of this. My actions have affected my relationship with you and you have brought your anger and your indignation against me. They're coupled together. They're linked. One train car following the other. He uses words like anger and wrath and indignation. At the end, forsaken. God, don't forsake me. Meaning, don't turn your back on me. Please don't leave me. Why? I thought God wanted me to be happy. I thought God wanted me to have a unicorn. I thought God posted, you know, rainbow kittens on Facebook. Why, why is God being so heavy on me? Why is God coming down on me? Why is God doing these things? Why? Why? Why does God hate me so much? Let's think of the derailment in East Palestine. Maybe you've watched some of the footage. Okay. Have you seen some angry people? Have you seen some hurt people? People that lived in the town. Reporters asking, have you been back to your house? I don't know if I can get back to my house. The mayor crying out, someone send me help. This is our town. Maybe you watched it. Did some of you watch it and get a little angry yourself? Maybe you saw, you know, the ecological damage, the dead animals. You've heard about the damage that it's brought to people physically. How many of you felt something about that? You felt angry? Yeah, okay. Our iniquity spills out into God's good creation. He's like, that's my town. Those are my people. What are you doing? 
You're marring and breaking and destroying and pulling apart that which I love, that which I designed to function and bring a glory and a radiance, and you're mucking it up. And so he says, God, I feel your hand on me. I feel your anger. I feel your indignation. Oh, God, please don't let it turn to wrath. Don't let it turn to wrath. Don't leave me. Don't forsake me. He calls it discipline. Look at that in verse 2. I think it's verse 1. Nor discipline. Discipline. That's a helpful word. Parents, you discipline. You don't punish. Right? Discipline is a proactive, moving a child in the right direction. Punish means, dude, we, now we got to deal with something, okay? You want to discipline means you want to shape that soul into what it's supposed to be. Discipline is instructive. It's corrective. It's beautiful. What father does not discipline the son he loves, it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Discipline's a good thing. And so even in great suffering, in the middle of iniquity, He's anchoring in the character of God that acts out of grace and love. God, in your grace and your love, you are pressing on me. In your grace and your love, I'm feeling this. That word, if you look at the very beginning of the psalm, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. In your translation, is it Lord all capitalized? Okay. That's referring to the covenant name of God. It's the name that God gave when Moses walked up. says, I am that I am. I'm Yahweh, meaning I'm the one who's in relationship with you. I'm the one that delivers you. I'm the one that sets you free. In the beginning of the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who delivered you. Have no other gods but me. It's that Lord. That's how he's anchoring himself. He's anchoring himself in the reality that God is gracious and God is loving. That God is working and moving in this poem, in this situation. Okay, so we teased out iniquity. We teased out suffering. We've teased out the Lord. Look at verse, four, verse 16. For, I said, only let them... Stop. Let's talk about community. Community. As we've already highlighted, if you think about the derailment over in East Palestine, there's a town in the middle of that. This might not have gotten a lot of the play that it needs to get or is getting had there not been a town involved. There's 5,000 people who live in this space whose lives are now immediately affected by a million pounds of vinyl chloride floating out in the air that they're breathing in that's blanketing everything. There's a community involved. And here in this poem, the poet says there's a community involved. There's a relational shift that's happening because of my iniquity. I'm experiencing it with my family. I'm experiencing it with my enemies. Look at verse 11 and verse 12. Verse 11 and verse 12. Verse 11, my friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. My nearest kin stand far off. Verse 12, those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. So he says, in my circle of relationship, there's an exchange that's happening because of my iniquities. My dearest friends and my loved ones, they're leaving. They're pulling away. 
And those who want to hurt me and harm me, they seem to be drawing in. What was order is now becoming chaos. His community is shifting. Have you ever experienced that? You get all stupid and the smart people pull away. And then you play the victim card because you just want to be enabled. Or maybe in your wisdom, you have watched a loved one do this and you're like, uh-uh, uh-uh. That train is not allowed in my town. Do not back that up and put that on my yard. No. You're like, well, that seems judgmental. That's exactly what it is. And that's exactly what it's supposed to be. Christians are supposed to be judging. That's not what it says on Facebook. No, that's what it says in your Bible. If you've been reading along with me through the Bible, we've gotten through 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in this last week. That's a great chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters in the whole book to be perfectly honest. Why? Because it really hits us where we're at. The church in Corinth was a hot mess, like a hot, hot, hot mess. It is so bad that the apostle Paul says, you guys are doing stuff that the pagans don't even do. And you're like celebrating it. Like what's wrong with you? He's like, one of you guys is now sleeping with your stepmom. And that's like the nicest, best translation that we can come up with. That's like, if we're being really generous with the terms, that's how you'd translate it. He's sleeping with his stepmom. It could mean a whole bunch of other bad. But if we're being generous at best, he's fornicating with his stepmom. And then he goes on to say, and you church, you're glorifying in it. You think it's the greatest thing. Look at this new expression of grace that we get to live and walk in. Look how we're going to let love win. Absolutely. Just let love win. And the Apostle Paul is, no, 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 no. I've already judged him. Meaning I have recognized his repeated act of disobedience. And I have given him now over to the consequences of his choice. God judges him. I'm merely enforcing it. I'm merely enforcing it. And so he says, and you guys need to do the same thing. If he will not be repentant, if he will not be restored, he needs to experience the consequences of his choices. So do not eat with him. Do not drink with him. Do not hang out with him. You need to pull back so that he can experience the consequences of his iniquity. You are to judge him. One, to protect the holiness of the community. It's that sacred. Number two, that he might be restored. Tough love, tough love, yeah. And maybe this is a little bit what the psalmist is referring to. In my iniquity, I feel my loved ones pulling away, pulling back. While at the same time, my enemies, chaos is leeching in. Everything is broken. Everything is falling apart. Nothing is good anymore. Everything is bad. As evil sets its snares and tries to trip me up. Isn't it sad that we do the very thing that pushes God away and lets chaos in and then we blame God for the hot mess we live in? He talks about community. 
And so he comes to the point, he says, this is foolishness. My actions are foolishness. In verse five, my wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. Meaning I thought it was gonna be fun at the time and it was, but man, has this come back to bite me? I thought that this was gonna be fun and it was, but man, the cost is more than I can bear. This was foolish. This choice was foolish. We teased out iniquity. We teased out suffering. We teased out the Lord's part in this. God in his grace pressing down. God in his grace letting him feel the weight of his iniquity. We talked about community. Now let's tease out this last part, his cry. He cries out. He confesses. In verse 17 and 18, verses 21 and 22. Let me read those in sequence for you. Verses 17 and 18, verses 21 and 22. For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. Do not forsake me, O Lord, verse 21. Oh my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. He verbalizes. He says some things out loud. What does he confess? What does he say? One thing that he says is, Lord, hear me. Hear me. He says it out loud. God, I know you will answer me. Hear me. Number two, he says, Lord, heal me. God, I'm crushed under this weight. I'm crushed under this pain. Will you heal me? Restore the joy of my salvation. This sin, this foolish sin, this iniquity has leached its poison into every aspect of my being. My marriage is shot. My working relationships are shot. God, would you heal my body? Would you heal my heart and my mind? Heal me. I have no peace. And you're the God of peace. God, will you put the pieces back together again? Not because I deserve it, but because you're gracious and kind. Lord, hear me. Lord, heal me. Lord, help me. At the end, make haste to help me. Oh Lord, my salvation like the mayor that's crying out for his town. We need help. We need help. This is beyond us. This is beyond me. I need help. I need help. And then, ta-da, it's done. Psalm's over. That's it. All done. No rainbows. No unicorns. No kittens. It just ends. God, I made a hot mess. The end. but I wanted pretty music, but I want warm fuzzies now. Yeah, well, that's not what you get. That's not what you get. That's not where the psalmist is at. There's no warm fuzzies. Oh Lord, save me, the end. But maybe there's something there. If we slow down just a little bit at the very end, look at the very last line in your Bible of that psalm. Look at the very last line of the poem. What does it say? O Lord, my salvation. O Lord, my salvation. 
One of the things that Jews like to do is they like to take phrases and attributes of God and turn them into names. Okay, as a way of anchoring and remembering who God is and his character. And if you were to take that phrase in Hebrew and turn it into a name, it would sound like this. Yeshua. Yeshua. And you're like, so? Well, if you go to Matthew chapter 1, you hear this really cool story about a young couple named Mary and Joseph. Okay. And both get visited by an angel because something very unique and special has happened to Mary and to Joseph. And Joseph really doesn't know how to respond. He's a little late in getting to the game. It's a guy thing. It's okay. Um, and so an angel comes to Joseph in a vision. He says, hey, that, that which Mary carries is of the Lord. That baby is from God. You are to name him Yeshua because he will deliver his people from their sins. We pronounce it Jesus. Jesus will deliver, carry our burdens. As he literally carries our cross, he bears the weight of all that we have done and will do. So what I did was I went back through the psalm this week and I tried to imagine knowing Jesus' tremendous sacrifice, his sinless life, him not carrying iniquities of his own doing, him not committing sin, him not fracturing reality, him not living out of relationship with the Father. I said, Holy Spirit says, Paul, what if you reread that psalm, but read it as if Jesus were saying it. As he carried your cross from Pilate's door to the hill of Golgotha. I says, I'll give it a try. Let me give it a go. And so maybe this will help you in the way that it helped me. Listen to these words. Can you imagine Jesus saying and praying these things as he carries your burden your sin. Lord, rebuke me not in your anger against Paul, nor discipline me in your wrath because of Paul. For the arrows of Paul have sunk into me, and your hand has come heavy on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation against Paul's iniquities. There's no health in my bones because of Paul's sin. For Paul's iniquities have gone over my head and like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of Paul's foolishness. 
I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there's no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and I am crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs for Paul. And my strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. What do you do in the light of Psalm 38? What do you do in the light of a life that's gotten derailed or one that's bringing about pretty certain destruction? Maybe you feel that this morning. What a gift of God's grace. Do you understand it's a gift of God's grace that you feel a heaviness? That, that's, that's a beautiful thing. If you don't feel anything, you should be scared out of your mind that you don't feel iniquity, that you don't feel sin. What does that mean? That means that your heart is hard. That means that it's calloused, that your conscience is, is numb to the reality, that sin is so poisoned and hardened you, that if you feel hardness, you give thanks to God. God, thank you that I feel the arrows. God, thank you that I feel your hand. And so what do you do? We confess. We verbalize. God, hear me. God, heal me. This is what has happened. I am sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for my iniquities. I have violated your creation. I've broken your order. I've hurt others. I've hurt myself. I've, I've, I've hurt you. You confess. You confess. Maybe that means coming forward and asking for prayer. Maybe it means going up to the cross and placing a memory there. Maybe it means calling out and reaching out to a friend. The connection card that's in your notes that tears off. Maybe that's a helpful way of reaching out in your prayer, in your confession. We cry out, Jesus, save me. Maybe when we're singing, you cry out, Jesus, save me. He's a gentleman. He's not going to act until you ask. Maybe there's something that we can learn from the Asbury uh, events. You've heard that in the news. Uh, four hours to the east is that train wreck. Two hours to the south is a pretty cool church service that's going on at Asbury. Um, revival is something that happens all throughout history. As the Holy Spirit visits a place for an extended period of time. Oftentimes, most oftentimes, as we read into it, it is led up to by weeks and months, sometimes years of sought after prayer, the church crying out to God in confession and humility. And then in a moment which you cannot schedule, you cannot ordain, and you cannot initiate, God in his grace by the power of his Holy Spirit comes upon a people a town, a community, in such a way that there's an awakening to sin and the goodness of the gospel that then catapults people out into the community to save souls, to be participating in the work of the gospel. It takes about 10, 15, 20 years to ever say that something is a revival. It's just hard to know. That's not to say that something can't be a really cool church service. I like to think that every Sunday morning we seek after a revival, don't we? 
I pray every Sunday morning that God would revive your heart and your soul. I pray that you would do the same thing. I'm not against revival in Asbury. I'm just for a revival in Ohio. That's all. That's all. But I do know that we are really addicted to sensationalism and feeling fuzzy. Which is why I'm like, why do you want to rush down to Asbury? Why don't you pray for revival right here? Someone in the church sent me a meme. Lots of you send me memes. Some of them are great. <laughs> and it was about Jesus standing at the door knocking. And that's a powerful passage out of Revelation chapter 3. Jesus standing at the door of a believer's heart. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I want to come in. I want to dine with you. I want to spend time with you. I want to, be, I want to enjoy your presence. I want to come in and clean up the hot mess that you got going here. And, and that's the invitation this morning. Opening our heart. Here's my heart, God. Here's my heart. Please don't be the kind of person that trips over Jesus through the front door as you go try to find a revival somewhere. You be a revival here this morning. You be the spark that transforms a church, a community, a valley. Thank you for sharing your time with us. And we'd love for the journey to continue. If you're a guest, would you consider reaching out to us? We would love to come alongside and encourage you in any way that we can. If you're someone who's joined us today and you are desperately reaching to find hope wherever you can, again, Jesus came that we would find hope. You can find hope today. If you want to send us a short note, a member of our hope team would reach out quickly, promptly, Come alongside and see what we can do to encourage you in whatever storm you might find yourself in. That's why Jesus came. That's why we're here. Jesus said there's two ways to live your life. And a wise man, a wise woman, builds their life on Jesus' instructions. God bless you.